Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I am your host, Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. And I will be your uh, host for today's interview. And today, I'm speaking with Nadia Kim. Dr. Kim is a professor of Asian and Asian American Studies and of Sociology at Loyola Marymount University and is the author of the new book, Refusing Death, Immigrant Women and the Fight for Environmental Justice in L.A., which came out with Stanford University Press in 2021 and since its release has won several awards, including the 2022 Nautilus Book Award and the American Sociological Association's Best Book Awards from the Asia and Asian America section, the Race, Gender, and Class section, and won an honorable mention from its Latino, Latina, and Latinx sociology section as well. Welcome to the New Books Network, Nadia, and congratulations on all the awards. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's nice to hear. Why don't we start, as we like to do here on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about you. Uh, Tell us about yourself, tell us about your background, and tell us how you became interested in the fields that you study, in sociology and in Asian and Asian American studies. Sure. So I consider myself a Korean American as well as a Korean Canadian, because I actually grew up in our northern neighbor. And... um, I have uh, a a strong sense of a global diasporic transnational kind of identity just because my family uh, live in Brazil, they live in South Korea, um, they live all over the world. And so that has always been a big part of the way I see the world. And this feeds into how I even got interested in sociology because I think one of the ways that I always wanted to connect with the world was through literature. And in high school, my high school teachers would always tell me, you know, your strength is in literature. You know, that just seems to be your subject. And I really loved it. So when I got to college, I majored in English literature and I really liked it, but I also felt increasingly unsatisfied with it because they were still putting forth the canon. So we read a lot of uh, Anglophile literature and, you know, the European canon. Um, But I also felt like it was highly, highly theoretical and conceptual, but they didn't always make the connections with what are the books saying and what are the implications for uh, the social events going on around us right now. And it was when I took a sociology of race and ethnic relations class that I finally felt that what was going on around me, you know, and I grew up in the 80s, I grew up in the 90s. Um, So one of the um, signal events of my life was the 1992 Los Angeles, quote unquote, riots, right? I like to call it unrest or uprising. And that involved Korean merchants, Korean American merchants. And I just remember thinking that the English lit classes and the assignments and the lectures just didn't give me the language and the cultural literacy to grasp and deal with the trauma of the 1992 unrest. But the class on racial ethnic relations did just because it was precisely about what was going on in terms of racial and ethnic hierarchies and strife, Um, not just in the U.S., but in places like Brazil and South Africa. So that really fed my worldview. Um, And even if we didn't deal enough with Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, I still felt like it got me closer. And so it was then that I decided that okay, this is going to make my graduation delayed, but I am actually going to double major in sociology as well as English. And that's when I was hooked. It sounds like you you found the field that was asking the questions that you were interested in at this, at this young age. Yes, they were asking the questions I was interested in, but also helping me understand why did they happen? Mm-hmm. Um, why did they happen at certain historical moments? What was their significance, right? Um, Both uh, economically, socially, politically, historically. And all of those things are 
capable of being done through literature, but I just don't think the way it was being taught to me was doing that. Mm -hmm. And what got you interested in the story that you tell in this book in particular, in the the, the history and the uh, contemporary issues surrounding environmental justice in Los Angeles? Yeah. You know, I think I could partly link that actually to my upbringing in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada, um, which is the most northeastern, you know, part of Canada. And I I grew up basically indelibly tied to nature, you know, nature, nature, not built nature. So um, the ocean, the sea, you know, uh, we often just had a fisher folk knock on our door every night uh, with fresh catches um, of everything from, you know, um, fresh fish to um, crab and lobster. And so it was literally sea to table, you know, Um, we would go pick, uh, you know, basically fruits and vegetables on on a regular basis. Uh, Blueberries stand out in my mind. Um, in that area. And so I think I just never felt like there was a separation between uh, peoplehood and nature. And that's always something that has stuck with me. And then, you know, fast forward, um, I'm in college and I'm uh, organizing on issues related to Prop 187, which basically wanted to deny social services to quote unquote illegals. Um, I was organizing around Prop 209, uh, and these are bellwethers, you know, in California, but this was basically to gut uh, affirmative action policies in education, uh, the labor market, housing, contracting. Um, And in the midst of all that organizing, I um, got engaged with a campaign that assisted the Hopi and the Diné tribes in Arizona. with fighting the um, the uh, uranium contam- contamination of their lands and all of the adverse health effects that they were experiencing, right, which is essentially environmental racism. And um, I was really uh, I was really taken by it. But just because of the other campaigns I was working on, I, it was fleeting and I couldn't really devote that much time to it. But like Newfoundland, that also always stuck with me. And then, of course, you have um, the popularization of, quote, global warming through Al Gore's uh, famous documentary. And then I started just on my own um, time learning about the climate catastrophe and, you know, being horrified about uh, what I was learning. Uh, And so I think I always felt that after I finished my first book, which was basically about uh, U.S. imperialism in South Korea and how that shaped race in all kinds of ways, I decided I I was going to immediately jump into a project on uh, environmental injustice, environmental racism, classism, etc. And I knew that in L.A., immigrants and non-immigrant people of color were the ones most adversely affected and therefore the ones most active. And so that is how I got into it. Why don't we take a step back and just define the terms that we're talking about a bit here. Can you give us a a brief definition and explanation of what exactly is environmental justice? And then relatedly, what is environmental injustice or environmental racism? Yeah, great question. Environmental justice would be Everybody's ability to live, play, work, study, uh, and um, worship in their residential communities without uh, facing uh, hazards to their health or to their life expectancy. So, relatedly, environmental injustice is when people are denied that ability and especially on the basis of group characteristics like race, class, immigration status, and the like. And tell us about environmental justice and injustice in Los Angeles specifically. What is the context for this book? Tell us in particular about air and about air pollution in LA. Why is breathing uh, uh, why can breathing be so harmful throughout much of the city? And how and why is that harm meted out so unequally in the city? 
Yeah, excellent question related to LA. So as some uh, viewers may know, LA has the worst air quality in the country. And historically that began with the auto companies, the oil companies, the auto parts companies, uh, basically um, conspiring together. So sometimes there are conspiracies uh, to essentially make everybody drive. Uh, instead of using the public transportation that had already been set up, such as a metropolitan red line, et cetera. So they tore up all those tracks and uh, built freeways and highways and made sure that uh, people spent a lot of money on cars and oil and car parts, et cetera. So thus began the uh, story of LA being the most air polluted or having the worst air quality in the country. Therefore, it starts there, but we need to understand that the story extends to the 1970s and 80s when the U.S. decides to deindustrialize and shift towards a manufacturing economy and essentially ships most of manufacturing overseas to Asia, Latin America, and the like. And because of that, most everything you and I buy, Steve, has to be shipped here. And countries where manufacturing uh, is commonplace, such as China, is not a hop or a skip or jump away. So what do the modes of transportation run on that ship all of the goods that you and I buy from cars to clothes to electronics uh, here to LA, over there uh, on the East Coast, Midwest? Uh, Well, they run on diesel. So we have cargo container ships that run on diesel. Then the goods are put on trucks that run on diesel The goods are also put on trains that, surprise, surprise, run on diesel. And so the particulate matter that goes into the air uh, lodges into people's lungs and causes asthma, uh, other uh, respiratory diseases, uh, is um, implicated in bronchitis, emphysema, Um, as well as heart disease and cancer. You know, we don't normally think of heart disease, but a strong linkage has been made. Um, And so LA having the largest port, it's the port of LA and Long Beach in North America, and among the largest, you know, whether it's top 10 or or it's in that range in the world, um, because we are closest to China, right? And so... People who live around the port complex, uh, people whose communities are often split or derailed by highways, and people who live by those rail yards are those that suffer the highest rates of asthma, cancer, and the like. Uh, And typically, those are communities of color. Uh, And in the case of LA, which is a gateway global immigrant city, it's also immigrants of color. Uh, many of whom are undocumented and or low income. And uh, the the fact of the matter is, is that all of us suffer because of air quality in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, I don't happen to live right by port complexes or rail yards, but I always say, see the soot, right? Um, from the freeways, for example, uh, on my windowsill, on my doorsteps, you know, something we have to wash off regularly. But for these communities of color that are suffering from environmental injustice because of race, uh, primarily and class, uh, secondarily, uh, they're really suffering the brunt of it. And this book includes uh, a great deal of on-the-ground research and interviews with people who are affected by environmental injustice in L.A., people on the front lines of the environmental justice fight. And you were saying that you yourself have have quite a bit of an activist background. Uh, uh-huh. Can you talk a little bit about the process of researching and writing this book? What was it like speaking to people who were so deeply engaged in movements like this? Yeah, I started this project in an unproductive way in the sense that 
normally you are a member of the social movements before you ask to formally study them. But that's not the way I did it just because of life circumstances insofar as my first job was actually uh, at Brandeis University and I had had a pre-doctoral fellowship in Boston as well. So I'd just been in Boston for a really long time. And um, by the time I got the job at Loyola, uh, my first book was just wrapping up and that's when I was starting my second book. So I, I knew that I'd be living in LA, but I hadn't been in LA for quite a while to be part of the environmental justice movement. So I had to start slowly but surely attending events and attending meetings and essentially uh, ingratiating myself to <laughs> the members of the movement. And I knew that that was going to take a while, which it did. So I just kind of started out attending events and protests and teach-ins and things like that. But I also started simultaneously telling them that I'm really interested in working on this project, uh, you know, trying to explain the expectations of academia, right? That I do this because in part I want to, and I'm very passionate about it, but it's also something that I'm required to do um, in terms of research expectations. And so they were all open to that and that was fine. And one of the interesting things is that I kept thinking, well, these are activists, and so what's going to ensure that I gain their trust and we build a rapport is that I share my activist bona fides, right? <laughs> so I make sure to tell them, look, I'm not just some professor who wants to come in and collect data and I have no concern for the community, no awareness of um, what it means to be an organizer. And then I just leave and I publish stuff and uh, it's all for my own gain. I, I just thought that's what I'm going to have to do to establish trust. And I do think that played a part, but what was really fascinating is that it was when I brought my baby and she was a young baby uh, at the time to the field, you know, because uh, as many working parents know, you kind of have to double up <laughs> to get things done. That was when uh, it seemed like the questions they might have had about me or a little bit of the guard that they might have put up came completely down. And I just didn't expect that necessarily. Um, and uh, it goes to show that research and research methodology is just as much kind of going in and seeing what emerges as much as it is you come in with a set of questions that you hope get addressed in some way. Well, let's get into the book a bit and the, the, the arguments and the stories that you tell within. And I want to start by talking about the role of the state, all of the activism and all of the, the issues of environmental justice and injustice that you're talking about are happening within the context of the United States and are being shaped by policies set by the U.S. government in, in, on various levels. So yeah. could, you, could you tell us a bit about the role of the state, particularly the sort of early 21st century U.S neoliberal state in uh, and the role that it plays in environmental justice, particularly as it pertains to the movements and the activism that you're interested in? Yeah, definitely. I'll rewind a little bit and I'll say that given uh, globalization and uh, the importation of most manufactured goods into our country and lots of other countries that have moved to a service economy, a lot of this affects other cities too. So I don't want to just single out LA, although my case study is Los Angeles, but it the same goes for um, Seattle, Tacoma. The same goes for New York, New Jersey, Houston, uh, Virginia, right? And so um, this, is, this whole uh, environmental injustice that affects mostly marginalized communities is something that's going on everywhere. And so the state clearly knows what's going on because our economy is contingent on the manufactured goods being brought in and then being consumed. And 
so what I essentially argue about the state is that the state is uh, conducting what I consider bioneglect, which is that um, there is a letting die that is going on, right? Because the state knows that there are a certain number of people, children that uh, are um, basically being sickened with uh, life-threatening chronic illnesses, um, but they prioritize commerce, right, and consumption and the market so much that they basically see it as, well, they're going to have to be the sacrificial lambs or the collateral damage. And this ties into uh, uh, questions we were talking about earlier, also about neoliberalism, and I won't go too long into it, but one of the staples of the neoliberalism that we have moved into, especially since the 1980s and the Reagan era, is that of non-regulation or deregulation, weak regulation, right? So that weak regulation of um, the port pollution, the rail yard pollution, the freeway pollution, and I should add, uh, and I'm sorry I didn't bring this in earlier, that all of this uh, manufacturing uh, abroad or importation of goods uh, hinges on oil, Okay, uh, so diesel obviously comes from oil. And a lot of cities like Los Angeles, uh, but as you know, oil is a big topic now because of the war in Ukraine uh, waged by Russia, uh, is that uh, oil has to be made somewhere as well, right? And uh, so there's a lot of oil that's also made domestically in the United States. But what most people don't know is that Los Angeles is the largest urban oil field in all of the country. So not only are the people of color that I worked with dealing with diesel pollution everywhere, but also uh, toxic contaminants from oil refining. Um, and there's very weak regulation of what the oil refineries do. So something that these refineries often do is called flaring. And so flaring is this massive release of multiple um, chemicals that are toxic and deadly into the atmosphere. And uh, the way that oil refineries get around it, for example, some of the policies, because there's such weak regulation and weak enforcement by the state, is that they'll flare a lot at night when people are asleep and there's going to be less uh, complaining about it. So these are all the ways in which the state gets implicated, right? Um, another quick way that I'll talk about is with regard to the undocumented immigrants, which is that the state is making a concerted decision not to legalize these populations that are essentially holding up our country and our economy. So um, the other decision they make is to not let them in at all. And, and we know all of this through Trumpism and the Trump era as well. I mean, it's kind of reached its apex there. Um, and so essentially the state punishes uh, undocumented immigrants uh, in multiple ways, not just by polluting their bodies and shortening their lives, but also making it incredibly difficult to live here and just feel free and safe and, and to not be detained or deported um, and to be able to have economic and political opportunities that citizens have. That idea uh, that, that you were talking about um, a moment ago, and that is, is of course, present in the book of bio-neglect, I found to be an incredibly uh, useful concept for thinking about other things as well, for thinking about the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, response to the COVID-19 pandemic, for instance, yes. where as, uh, you know, I'm going to use the word we very loosely here, but like we as a society just sort of determined that, well, however many people are going to die per day going forward, that is going to be the price of doing business for going to restaurants and opening up the economy and all that as well. I see a lot of parallels between what you're talking about between the, the ongoing pandemic and this more localized example in Los Angeles, too. Yes, no, that's an excellent point. And I think that um, the whole point about neoliberalism that I, you know, mentioned earlier has a lot to do with allowing and basically instituting an extreme individualist society, right? We were always mm -hmm. individualists, Adam Smith, you know, the whole, you know, shtick. But neoliberalism allowed us to become so extremist in our individualism that 
we would argue that it is more important for me to have the individual right not to wear the mask than mm -hmm. for me to care whether my unmasked face is killing somebody. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I don't think it gets more extreme than that. Right. And yeah. the notion that making us wear a mask for the collective good is a form of communism and socialism, which obviously is the boogeyman and has been in the United States since its inception. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's the it's a very similar uh, relationship to nimbyism and to I'm just going to buy and waste whatever I want. Um, and I'm going to, you know, live the way that I live because that's my individual right. It doesn't matter that, uh, communities of color, people of color, undocumented immigrants are, uh, suffering through premature death and chronic illness, uh, and don't even feel free, you know, to move about the world, you know, um, there's just a complete lack of, uh, consideration of what is the public good mm -hmm. maybe my favorite part of the book my favorite chapter of the book was the one where you talk about emotion and how uh, among immigrant activists and other activists as as well how emotion can be an important tool in the activist toolbox can you talk a bit about how emotions can have a great deal of power in environmental justice movements yeah environmental justice activists face a system and institutions that essentially propagate emotional violence and emotional neglect. And I don't think we've always talked about the emotional structures of global capitalism and neoliberal capitalism, right? Racial capitalism. And so I appreciate you uh, picking up on the emotional side of it, which I was really passionate about writing in this book, you know, drawing in my own emotions. Um, and so because they face a system that institutionalizes uh, physical and emotional violence and neglect, they know that they have to marshal their own emotional power because they feel besieged by top-down emotional power, right? And... So what's interesting is that although the immigrants could vary, there was a very strong sense that they would need to strategize their emotional deliveries and their testimonies to achieve a certain end, right? Sometimes that end was to shame the callous, stone-faced, uh, apathetic, uh, regulatory officials or the officials from BP ARCO, um, you know, that it was to kind of shame them. So that necessitated a certain kind of emotional testimony and emotional strategy, whether it was weeping, having their child by their side who was coughing and hacking um, with inhalers. Another strategy that drew on emotionality and affect was um, essentially trying to convince the public, the community to join the movement. So sometimes when that was more the strategy, they would, uh, basically call more of their angry emotions or their sense of indignation and, you know, righteous anger. Right. Um, and in many ways that was to galvanize residents who might be feeling like, I don't want to get involved in this. I'm undocumented. They're going to deport me if I get involved in politics. I'm just going to completely stay away, you know, or sometimes, you know, residents in their community will just say, well, it's just the way it is, you know, like what is, what is us protesting or, you know, basically going to these meetings, what's that going to do? You know, like we're powerless against this system, right? And so it was to kind of change minds and hearts. Um, sometimes some of the activists felt like it was best to be very gentle, be very friendly and amicable, smile. Some of the women even uh, talked about sort of asserting their feminine wiles, you know, um, as a way to kind of uh, disarm and maybe soften up a little bit, the mostly male officials, right? Whether they're corporate or government. So it was fascinating to me the way in which there was both 
often genuine sadness or anger or niceties, uh, but it was also uh, premeditated and it was strategized, you know? And so when I saw the ways in which it could change the dynamic in the room um, or the ways in which the regulatory or corporate officials would kind of have to navigate their response um, to especially these women and mothers, but there were also men, fathers, um, you know, it was just fascinating. Now, the other way in which emotions matter so much is that precisely because uh, neoliberal racial capitalism is all about this emotional violence and neglect, one of the major political and organizing strategies of these immigrants of color, mostly women, you know, who are often socialized to care more about others, to be in touch with their emotionality, um, was to form emotional support networks that they saw that as just as important as, you know, trying to shut down the power plant or trying to get um, information to the community about uh, environmental hazards and the statistics. It was just as important to them to make sure to ask, gather, um, and politicize people through, how are you? What are you feeling? What are you struggling with? What do you want to talk about? What do you need? You know, do you need psychologists or therapists or counselors? You know, um, how can we sort of deal with the emotional toll of all this? And, and I just thought that was um, wonderful and something that in my prior organizing, we had not prioritized at all. You also say in the book that environmental justice is at its core about bodies. Um, yeah. So explain that a bit. How are bodies and the, the, the act of or the kind of being of embodying at the center of this story? How is that the case? I see bodies and embodiment as a very broad framework for understanding what we think or how we think, uh, what we feel, how we feel, uh, and our physical motion through the world. So to me, when our embodied selves or our embodied communities are situated within environments, be they a natural nature, nature environments or built nature environments, there was always that um, relationship between that embodiment and that environment, right? And so oftentimes because, especially in sociology and the other social sciences, we're taught to kind of think more along the lines of race, class, gender, uh, sexual orientation, etc., which is absolutely major social axes of society and of the world. There's no question. But I think if we understand more broadly the fact that racialized, gendered, classed, bodies are always somehow uh, in relationship to nature, nature, or built nature, then it allows us to see that we can never really separate the two. And so that's why, for example, in my book and other uh, eminent scholars, uh, I'm not eminent, but, you know, eminent scholars have said that if we want to truly understand racism and white supremacy, there is no way to do that without um, centering environmental racism, right? Or colonial racism, imperialist racism, settler colonial racism, right? And um, to me, that is absolutely true. But we need to understand that we have to think of the world in terms of the relationship, the interconnections, right? The synergies, the symbiosis between uh, our embodiment and, um, you know, the environment that these bodies are situated within. And uh, along with emotions and along with bodies, another really important concept in this book is that of community and uh, how people define community. So tell us, how do the immigrant activists that you spoke with, how do they define this idea of community, particularly in the book among uh, Mexicans and Asian Americans? Uh, how is community defined in ways that is both kind of similar to each other, but also very different when it comes to questions of uh, class and race and ethnicity? The largely Mexican, many of whom were undocumented and lower income working class, 
the way that they defined community, to my surprise, was based on a collective who are impoverished. And so the way in which that was similar to the largely uh, Filipina, Filipinex immigrant activists was that community was definitely a broader collective of those who were harmed by uh, environmental injustices and who uh, it, it also included those who were sympathetic, who co-organized, uh, who basically tried to support the movement in whatever way they could, allyship, for example, um, who might have come from cleaner environments. So, for example, I'd be an honorary member of the community, right, when, when I was working with them. Now, the way that it differed, however, was the fact that the largely Filipinx, but there was also some Pacific Islander, um, Asian American, Pacific Islander immigrants, they s tended to see it more as a racialized collective. So, you know, uh, we uh, Asian Americans, we people of color, we um, Samoans or Cambodians or Pacific Islanders, um, it was more a racialized collective, uh, which is more in line with the kind of uh, broader social scientific findings that it is actually race that is most frequently the determinant of whether a community will suffer uh, disproportionate environmental hazards and contamination or not. Um, whereas the uh, largely Mexican Latinx community really believed that the system was violent and uh, callous towards uh, all poor people. And that if they were not poor, that they would likely be living in a community that had much cleaner air, soil, etc. So that was very fascinating to me because given that the communities were mostly Latinx, I mean, predominantly Latinx, that I thought that they would kind of see the we and the us that was uh, being aggressed against as us Latinos, right? Us Mexicans, us people of color. But really, um, the sense that uh, class uh, was the main dividing axis uh, really organized their politics. Now, as a quick note, what I think uh, is one of the major reasons for this is uh, one that forces us to look transnationally. And my work has always centered a transnational framework within a broader uh, world that has been colonized and imperialized um, and global capitalized, right? And so if you think transnationally, the main injustice that these immigrants suffered back in Mexico was poverty. So it makes sense that they, if they experience poverty there and then they come here and they experience poverty as well, um, that poverty is going to be uh, center stage in their political orientation and ideology. And then related to all this, all of these ideas about community and different ideas about what uh, uh, what unites people within these groups also shapes how they view themselves as part of, or maybe more accurately, as, as kind of described in the book, as like apart from the United States as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, relatedly, and this point uh, joins with the previous point I made nicely, the Filipinx Americans, for example, had a very strong relationship to environmental justice struggles in the Philippines. Because if you look at imperialist racism conducted by the United States against the Philippines, uh, the U.S. has um, basically polluted major waterways uh, in the Philippines, such as Subic Bay, uh, because of massive uh, military-based pollution, pollution and militarized pollution. So one of the things that uh, many of us don't hear about is the fact that, yes, oil and gas, fossil fuel for certain, you know, major contributor, one of the biggest contributors to the climate crisis and environmental injustice locally. But the biggest polluter in the entire world is the military. And the United States military being the biggest and most, you know, formidable military in the world um, is one of the biggest polluters uh, across the globe. So... That imperialist racism in the Philippines has been joined by the, um, you know, basically unfettered uh, capitalism that countries like the United States has imported into Philippines. So, for example, um, 
logging companies basically just, you know, basically completely decimate, you know, just acres and acres and acres of forests. And because of that, many Filipinos died when there was massive flooding because there was no trees there to stop the flood. And so that kind of, you know, U.S.-led neoliberal global capitalism is also a form of imperialist environmental racism there. So because of the Filipino Americans from locally Los Angeles, their relationship to the Philippines and the environmental imperialist racism over there, that was one of the reasons why they um, transnationally also really focused on the racism aspect, right? And so I bring all that up to say that that transnational orientation is uh, is practiced by immigrants of color increasingly in today's world because they don't feel that they are made fully human or allowed to be fully human in the United States. Um, and, you know, I don't even have to rattle off all of the, you know, uh, harmful rhetoric, racist rhetoric, uh, you know, nationalistic rhetoric uh, by our politicians, you know, uh, which reached a zenith point with uh, Donald Trump's administration. But basically, um, they're either denied uh, this sense of, of fully being a member of this nation state uh by dint of the environmental classism that they perceive, the environmental racism. It's also the uh, regime of illegality, um, the detention regime, which is basically just an extension of the uh, prison industrial complex, um, the deportation regime, the militarized border, um, the wars or the um, incursions waged by the United States into their countries, both past and present. Um, And so, yeah, they basically see community tying back to our previous point as their home, right? And their home making, because really there is no uh, other home to which they belong. And that separation, what you call in the book in a phrase that I, I really loved and like underlined and wrote a little exclamation point next to when I was, when I was reading the book, <laughs> that, that, that separation, what you call uh, an unwillingness to genuflect to the American state, how does yes. that shape, how does that shape ideas about uh, politics and politics? And by politics and politics, I mean like politics with a lowercase p and politics with an uppercase p. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really fascinating because... These activists, if you ask them about any local political issues related to their community, and it doesn't just have to be about environmental justice, it could be about what they think about, you know, police treatment or what they think about schools. Because one of the things that I also study in the book, uh, which I haven't mentioned yet, is the school reform movement. And so, uh, you know, they understand that the state, you know, is involved in public schools and whether or not the schools have adequate resources, textbooks, teachers, hot meals, uh, counselors, mental health counselors. That was something, you know, very important to them because as we've discussed, they politicize emotional life and find political uh, solace in forming emotional support networks to deal with the violence of the state and corporate and Wall Street America. So interestingly, you ask them about local municipal politicians and bills and ballots and issues. They know everything. So that was the small P. But when it came to federal politics and federal issues, they were uninterested. They were detached they did not feel that that had direct relevance to their everyday lives and to their political activism. And so when I would even ask, like, what are the federal campaigns or platforms that you follow, if any, a lot of times it didn't have to do with the environment because they just felt like what they were doing at the federal level was so far removed and also ignorant of what was going on in their local Wilmington, their local Carson, their local West Long Beach. And they would mention, oh, I I care most about immigration reform or I care most about their educational policy. And one of the conclusions I came to was I recognize that because of that violence, if you will, broadly defined from the state and from corporate America, 
they just had no uh, belief or faith in uh, that political realm. And that also connects to the transnational experience, history, and framework because many of them bemoaned the politicians in Mexico, bemoaned the politicians in the Philippines, you know, from, uh, you know, basically even Duterte, right, um, on down, and uh, Marcos uh, early on, just because they felt like those, that whole sort of national level political regime was so corrupt and so far removed from caring about everyday people. So... You know, and again, recall that this is also a state that is violent or um, nativist, racist nativist against immigrants uh, and illegalizes them. So, you know, they really focus on, look, I care about the actors, political and otherwise, who are local, know and embody our community. So by embody, they know what it smells like, looks like, feels like, the pollutants. They know the hot spots. They've seen them. They see the big oil refineries, you know, the, the train yard. They know all that. So even if some of those folks are corrupt too or turn a blind eye or are bought by the uh, oil refineries, they're bought by, you know, the ports or whatnot, that at least with them, we have more of a fighting chance because they're not completely disembodied from our community in the way, for example, Barack Obama is. And don't get me wrong, many of the Asian and Latinx immigrants love Barack Obama, but did they feel that people at the federal level, elected official level, embodied their community and therefore could sense it, um, care about it, want to do something about it? Absolutely not. And then finally, you end the book by talking about young people in another uh, uh, pretty remarkable chapter. Often you're talking about the children of the people that you are interviewing earlier in the book and writing about earlier in the book. So uh -huh. how do these young people conceive of these issues of politics, both big P and little p? And how and why is age this kind of often under-addressed lens of analysis? Yeah. I'll start with the last part of your question. Interestingly enough, there has been some work on citizenship uh, by Iris Young and others who address the lack of political recognition given to young people. And so in effect, what we're doing is we're stripping young people of resources, even if we don't care about rights as much. Um, as you know from my book, I'm not as concerned about rights because that involves being embroiled in the state and, and only finding political answers and solutions in and through the state. Um, but, you know, resources, right? We do need resources. And so if we completely leave young people out of our citizenship policies or doctrines or rights re re and resources regimes, then essentially they're being um, stripped, right, and dehumanized. And there's a lot of sort of political discourse about the way in which we uh, infantilize youth, uh, we over-infantilize youth, when if you think about it, who has been at the center of all massive social movements in the United States and across the globe? It has been young people, right? Whether it's the civil rights struggle, which many of us are familiar with, you know, the women's rights movement, um, the LGBTQIA movement, um, the list goes on and on, right? The, the anti-colonial movement. I mean, all people have to uh, be reminded of is how young Dr. MLK was, Malcolm X, right? Um, all of them were incredibly young, right? And so... Uh, how, on the one hand, are youth and young people the agents of massive revolutionary or social change, yet they're not recognized formally under our political doctrines, right? And so one of the ways in which not just the historical activists that I mentioned, uh, you know, anti-war movement, uh, free speech, right? Student democracy movement. But, you know, the environmental justice activists of today, such as the ones I studied in LA, the way that they completely um, 
turn that on its head is by granting themselves political voice and political resources, right? Even uh, amidst incredible insecurity, lack of confidence, fear of not having all the knowledge and the stats and the science, you know, they go up there and they face full-grown adults, uh, often in their middle ages or later, right? And basically uh, tell them through the uh, emotionally and affective uh, testimonies that I mentioned earlier and really making that political, that they are forcing these uh, elected officials and these corporate representatives uh, and the people who serve the corporations, such as their own in-house scientists and doctors that say everything's fine, you know, they're basically forcing them to contend with young people and young people's experience and perspective of environmental racism and classism. So here are some examples of that. So these kids, unlike their first-generation parents, who became politicized because of the parents seeing their kids and their neighbors and other family members suffering. These are the kids that actually got asthma when they were one or two or three, right? So they've lived their whole lives with asthma. Some of them have seen their cousins or their school-age friends die of asthma attacks. These are the ones that know pretty early on that race is an organizing principle and structuration of the United States. So unlike their parents, race is center stage in their political identities, their political understandings, and therefore their strategizing. Uh, so they see the racial dimensions of environmental injustice more readily and more clearly than their parents. And obviously, these are kids that grow up learning about uh, the civil rights struggle, Dr. MLK Jr., uh, and, you know, learn about the Brown Berets and the Chicano movement, et cetera, et cetera, um, which is definitely more pronounced in their communities uh, that are predominantly Latinx. So they grow up with that understanding. And I do think that because they grow up with that understanding and that physical suffering, uh, not to mention the fact that they have weak access to healthcare and experience discrimination and ignorance there, that they are much more skeptical of formal politics and electoral politics, especially at the federal level than I had anticipated. And so even in terms of the fact that they could be voting for the first black man or the first, you know, visibly black man uh, to become president of the United States, there was not necessarily that excitement. Uh, there was not necessarily that sort of uh, desire and zeal to kind of campaign for him and be a part of that whole very youth-dominant uh, movement, like, for example, for Obama, uh, that I kind of saw, I think, more among more privileged youth because they had a very strong understanding of the way in which the state, corporate America intertwined to make their lives uh, incredibly unhealthy, uh, unleash premature death, and to look down on their communities, to look down on Wilmington, look down on West Long Beach, look down on Carson. Um, so kind of similar to their parents, though, um, they even if they were uh, sort of jaded by local politicians, that if they were going to put their efforts anywhere, it was going to be in that realm. And then as we begin to wrap up here, I always like to ask my guests to put themselves in the shoes of uh, a reader of their book. And imagine a reader thinking back on this book a year after reading it, maybe five years after reading it. What would you hope that that person would come away from this book understanding? What would be sort of one big takeaway you would hope that they might remember thinking back a few years down the line from, from the work that, that we've been talking about here today? Yeah, I think one of the major things I'd like them to consider is the environment is not just natural nature out there, right? That it's, oh, that's air or that's water and oceans or it's soil. And it doesn't really have to do with people and relationships and institutions within our society. It's just kind of like that stuff out there, just kind of like the climate crisis is stuff that happens 
out there and once in a while we're reminded of it uh, being close to home. I really hope that they understand that the environment is also human nature, right? It's the peopled environment. It's the built environment. And as I mentioned earlier, all of us are in relationship to that environment and to one another. So there's no way you can separate any of it. And by extension, all of us are implicated in terms of what pollution exists, how much that pollution is unleashed upon people of color, low-income people, immigrants, especially the unauthorized, and that we have to think again, going back to kind of the COVID-19 pandemic example, about the collective. So even though I don't want to take the focus away from the activists of color themselves, especially many of them being women and mothers who get no political respect, um, and I don't want to individualize uh, a phenomenon that is highly uh, you know, embedded in our system, I do want people to think about how much the world is defined now by oil, fossil fuels, uh, consumption, um, residential segregation by race and class. Uh, and I would really like people to think about how do we address those structurally? How do we address those institutionally whilst at the same time, yes, doing our individual things like solar panels and less water during droughts and recycling and all that. But I want people to see the latter as secondary to finding the structural solutions or, or the structural way forward. Um, so what does that mean exactly? As a brief example, what I would say is let's go into the communities that are marginalized and listen Let's listen to what these people are suffering from and what they need help with. You know, just sit back, listen, learn, and then help, right? Just be an ally in whatever way that you can. That's a movement towards structural solutions, not a siloed, individualized solution that will ultimately never solve the environmental injustices and climate crises that we're facing right now. The last thing I'll say really quickly is I want people to know that it is the unsung, the overshadowed, right? The, the people who have no names that are the ones fighting to make the air cleaner for us to breathe and for our, hopefully our children to breathe if there's a world for our children and grandchildren. And I want people to um, pay that kind of political respect where it's due. You know, as I was reading this book, I was kind of, I'm a historian by training. I, I teach history, which is a related field, of course, to sociology, but it's its own distinct thing. Um, yeah. And as, as I was reading this book, I was thinking, you know, in history, so often we can fall into the trap of, you know, writing or teaching or, or whatever is telling the stories that we tell that are basically like, you know, things were bad. A bunch of stuff happened. They were still bad after all that stuff happened, right? <laughs> and what I liked about this book is that it was a story about people, you know, sitting up and taking notice, about people doing things, about people seeing problems in their community and, you know, organizing and, 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 and engaging as activists in trying to make things better. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a difference between history and sociology, but it was, it was just refreshing to, to read a book like this about people doing stuff and trying to make the world a better place. So I really appreciated that. That was one of my big takeaways that I'm going to come away from this book understanding. Thank you so much for saying that because I do think that oftentimes in our disciplines, we're not encouraged. So some of this is about the professionalization of our disciplines, right? Mm -hmm, we're not mm -hmm. encouraged to really think of this as, well, what about what I just found, uh, leads or opens a doorway to how we address these hierarchies and social injustices and systemic problems, right? And mm -hmm. I do think that given the political nature of our world, I do think there is a, a bit of a sea change in academia right now and in the quote-unquote ivory tower that we do need to stop 
branding work or stigmatizing work that has strong political implications as, you know, mere ideology. I think mm -hmm. that's highly problematic because as you and I both know, all of us bring our subjective positions to our research. If that's yeah. the case, then what are the subjective solutions that our research helps point to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when I'm talking about these things with, with my students um, in classes, sometimes a student will say like, well, we'll be talking about, I don't know, the rise of conservatism in the 1960s and 70s. And they'll say, well, I don't want to get political in talking about this. And I say, we're talking about history. It's all going to be political no matter what you do. And and I think that there's a broader recognition uh, within academia that, as you're saying, the work that we do is going to be political and subjective in that way, and that maybe we should embrace that a little bit more. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think disciplines have a lot to learn from each other. I know a For lot sure. of historians, and I've read quite a bit of history. And so one of the beauties of history is being being able to document change is the beauty of the writing, is the details, the richness, uh, which I think sociology needs, right? But I also mm -hmm. think sociology brings to the table a focus on uh, theorizing the everyday lived experience, right? Mm -hmm. And the connection between Absolutely. individuals and broader racial, political economy, etc. And so yeah. hopefully we can stop being so siloed disciplinarily as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then for my last question, I always like to uh, get a preview of what the, the, the scholars and the authors that I have on the show are working on next. This, this book has been out for, I think, about a year or so at this point. Um, what have you been working on in the, in the interim? You're already doing this to me, Steve. You're rushing me. I, I already am. Come on, come on. I want to have you on again as soon as possible. I know, I know. Yeah, you know I've got stuff brewing in my mind, you know. Uh, so one of the first things I'm going to be working on is I actually want to work on a book that is going to be an intellectual history, a critical intellectual history of sociology, um, in part because I was very much inspired by the work of a sociologist named James McKee. And he wrote a book called Sociology and the Race, uh, I think it's called Sociology the Race Problem, the Failure of a Perspective. And what it addressed was the failure of sociology in the 1950s to anticipate the civil rights struggle and the broader black freedom struggle, even though social science prides itself on being able to track social patterns and therefore at least have some sense of predictive power, right? Not to say that you're going to predict everything exactly like with a crystal ball, but that you'd have some ability based on tracking social forces. Now, I believe the same thing happened with the rise of the Trump era, that social scientists, and to be frank, other disciplines, were caught rather flat-footed with the rise of the Trumpian era, basically of neo-fascist authoritarian populism based on racist nativist demagoguery, right? And I think the social sciences were also flat-footed on what that would entail specifically about that racist nativist demagoguery. So the focused attack on Mexicans, Latinos, and Muslims, the focused attack on China and therefore Asian Americans uh, who could be mistaken for Chinese. Uh, I don't think the social sciences and much of academia had done a good job of anticipating that. So what I want to do is I want to trace the intellectual patterns and debates that we were having leading up to the rise of the Tea Party and Trump era, etc., that were kind of myopic or asking questions that were uh, maybe sideways or a little bit too delimited. Um, you know, for example, I think Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have been rendered uh, either invisible or secondary at best um, to the race issues that we've been studying and the racial populations uh, we've been researching. So I do think that's uh, one of the reasons. So that's one project I'm working on. Another one that I've sort of started um, just thinking about uh, in terms of the literature at this point in the early stages is to study U.S. imperialist racism in South Korea. And, you know, for so long I've been studying South Korea and nobody cared about South Korea until the, you know, until Samsung and LG and all of them came into prominence. And of course, BTS, Blackpink and Squid Game and Parasite and all of that, right? So that's relatively recent. 
But what I'd like Americans and other people to know is that the U.S. has been an imperialist power in South Korea since the mid-1940s after World War II, and that that has invited uh, imperialist environmental racism. And one of them is a missile detection system that the U.S. military uh, in cooperation with the South Korean state, since the South Korean state has to depend on the U.S. militarily, still um, wants to put in this uh, peaceful rural village. And essentially, uh, the, the contaminants and the militarized danger and violence that this missile detection system could bring to this rural village um, is legion. And you already have many, many uh, elderly, in fact, grandmothers, women, as well as elderly men out there daily protesting and physically fighting with uh, military police or the Korean police force. And it's so this military system is called THAAD, T-H-A-A-D. And so I wanted to sort of just do some pilot research on that, but I do think it'll be something difficult to research. So I'm trying to figure that out. Both of those sound like fantastic and incredibly relevant projects. So, Thank you. Uh, uh, hurry up and get writing them so I can <laughs> so I can read them and put them on my bookshelf. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, get me just gallons of coffee. I'll do it. All right. I'll do what I can. <laughs> Dr. Nadia Kim is a professor of Asian and Asian American Studies and of Sociology at Loyola Marymount University and is the author of the award-winning book, Refusing Death, Immigrant Women and the Fight for Environmental Justice in L.A., which came out with Stanford University Press in 2021. And I should note that all proceeds from the book go to the community activists that uh, Dr. Kim worked with. Uh, uh, so please do support this book. Go buy it and read it. Uh, it's, it's, it supports all manner of good causes and it's just a fantastic book in general. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nadia. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Steve. I had so much fun talking to you. Take care. <laughs> 